evidence and answers. Is the Exodus historical? Critics argue that the evidence reveals the Exodus is folklore. Critics argue that there are no extra-biblical records for the Exodus in Egypt or the Near East. They also argue that the archaeological data of Canaan does not match up with the Exodus. Critics state that there is no record of the Hebrews in the Egyptian records and that the plagues would have decimated Egypt, but this is never mentioned in Egyptian records. It seems the case against the Exodus is overwhelming. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At a recent conference hosted by the Wailai Baptist Church in Hawaii, Pat addressed many of these challenges and presented a case for the Exodus. Now with part one of session three is our host, Pat Zucaran. Continuing our study on the Exodus. All right, on the Exodus here. Did it actually happen? It's probably one of the most, it's the most important event in the Old Testament. And it certainly has very significant ramifications for us in the New Testament. If these plagues ravaged the land of Egypt, then what would we expect here? Pharaoh has lost his army. You've lost your Pharaoh. Plagues have ravaged your land, your livestock, your economy is gone. Your slave force is gone. Your wealth is gone. He's been plundered by the Israelites here as they left. What would you expect? Right now, remember, historical writing back then is like political propaganda. The Egyptians will never write in their records, you know, Pharaoh, I was defeated by a group of slaves and my country was exploited and all the gold we gave them away. They're not going to write stuff like that. They're like, remember, like St. Louis, St. Louis High School, only talk about football. The real sports that we care about, golf, tennis, judo, they don't talk about because St. Louis loses. So I don't want to talk about football. Egyptian pharaohs are like that, okay? They're not going to talk about their defeat. So what do we look for? We look for other literature there in Egypt, but not only Egypt. Okay, we're looking for stuff in the surrounding empires because they trade with one another. They're fighting with one another. And if they sense weakness in Egypt, they're going to pounce all over it. Okay, so with all this happening in Egypt, what would you expect? You would expect a collapse of the Egyptian empire, a sudden collapse of the Egyptian empire. That's what we're looking for. Is there a time where we see a sudden collapse? It's like this. Remember with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, let's just say they were able to shut out all the news cameras and cut off all radio in the Soviet Empire there in Eastern Europe. So we're kind of at a blackout here. You would think something's going on because suddenly you see Soviet troops withdrawing from Eastern Europe. Right? And you're going, wait a minute, something's going on. All these guys are leaving. You're seeing Soviet monuments to Stalin and all these Soviet leaders coming down. They're being pulled down or they're being shot up or defaced. And you're going, oh, wait, something's going on here. Then you're seeing countries declare their independence. Right? Suddenly we're like Lithuania. What's Lithuania? Croatia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Poland, all these countries. East and West Germany, the Berlin Wall coming down. And you're going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Wait a minute. Something's going on with this Russia. Russians are pulling out here. 
Something big must be going on. The Russian Empire must be coming to an end. All right? That's what you expect when you see the fall of Egypt. Right? So you need to look at all the countries around Egypt and see what is going on. Now, if we take the 1406 date, things fall into place very nicely. Now, so who is the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Well, if you take the early date, 1446, it's Tutmosis III or Amenhotep II. It's one of these two guys. The problem is, this is the golden era of the Egyptian empire. You don't see a sudden collapse under these two guys. These are two of the most powerful rulers of the 18th dynasty. In fact, it's under Tuthmosis III that the Egyptian empire expands. It doesn't decline, it expands. It goes from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. And Amenhotep is another incredible general who subdues that whole area from the Nile all the way up to the Euphrates. Okay? And they're battling two empires up there, the Hittites and Mitanni, and they're able to repel them. So a collapse didn't occur there. By the way, this is the uh, statue of Tuthmosis III and Amenhotep II. The later date is... 1260 BC because it says that the children of Israel built the city of Python and Ramses. And many say this is Ramses II, the greatest pharaoh of the 19th dynasty. Now, the problem here is there's no decline in the Egyptian empire. The Egyptian empire recovers, not to the glory of the 18th dynasty, but it recovers quite a bit under Ramses. He's able to once again reestablish the powerhouse of the Egyptian dynasty, and there subdue Canaan once again. And then his, the one who followed him, Pharaoh Merneptah, creates the Merneptah stele. He goes up there to Canaan, and he just conquers all the kings up there. So there's no decline in the Egyptian empire if you take the early date or if you take the late date. There's no decline in the empire. The empire just keeps going and expanding. But if you take the middle date, now things begin to fall into place. Now, the Hyksos, remember, they are Asiatic Semitics. They come from Canaan. And they migrate down into Egypt by the hundreds. And they introduce two technologies to Egypt. The horse-drawn, lightweight chariot and the composite bow. They're the ones who introduce it into Egypt. So, in the book of Genesis, it says that Joseph rode in a chariot behind Pharaoh. That could only happen in the Hyksos rule. Because right, they're the ones that introduced the chariot. And the composite bow allowed them to shoot arrows. So that's how they were able to conquer the Egyptian empire. Okay? Southern Egypt, the Nile Delta area. And the native Egyptians withdrew to what would be called southern Egypt. There, and Egypt was divided in half. Northern Egypt, the Nile Delta, and southern Egypt were the Hyksos rule. And that's where they would welcome Canaanite shepherds like, you know, coming out of Canaan like Jacob and his family and allow a foreigner like Joseph to rise to power as he did. It makes all the sense under the Hyksos rule here. Now, the Hyksos, Pharaoh Amos, there is in southern Egypt, in the southern kingdom, amassing his army. Because he wants to get rid of the Hyksos. He wants to get rid of these foreign rulers. So he abides his time, amasses his army, and then in 
1530, he comes and he takes over northern Egypt, the Delta area, kicks out the Hyksos, all right, and chases them back to Canaan. He can't stand the foreigners. The 18th dynasty is very anti-Semitic. They don't want to see foreigners come in and take over Egypt again like the Hyksos did. So one of the first actions Amos does, he enslaves the Asiatics there who are in Egypt, turns them into a massive slave force. Then he reinforces his eastern border, right, all the way to the Suez Canal, building canals and then lengthy walls and then a string of fortresses all designed to keep the Asiatics out of Egypt. And once again, to control the migration coming in. And we see that phrase in the book of Exodus 1.8. There arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Pharaoh almost fits the bill. Pharaoh almost, if he was living in southern Egypt, in the southern kingdom, and he comes in and he takes over the night, kicks out the Hyksos, then he wouldn't know who Joseph is the guy that saved Egypt during the Great Famine. He wouldn't know, all right? And he despised those Semitic Asiatics. Okay, so he's that pharaoh there. And the empire grows under him. He establishes the 18th dynasty, and the succeeding pharaohs grow that dynasty as they defeat the city-states of the Levant. Okay, the Levant means Syria, Jordan, Israel, Canaan, that area. That, that is the Levant there. And he expands the control of Egypt over that area. And one of the things Amenhotep and the succeeding pharaohs do is they want to keep that slave force going. All right? But they also want to control the population of Canaan so that they're not going to have an invasion once again. So what do they do to control the population of Asiatics in Egypt? Well, we get a hint of that in Exodus, right? Pharaoh said, baby boys, throw them in the Nile. Why? Well, they're no use to us as slaves, and we want to control that slave population. But also we want to control the population in Canaan, so what do these pharaohs do? They control Canaan. They go in there and do these slave raids, okay, and grab these, force these slaves, young men, boys, and girls from Canaan, and drag them down into Egypt there to continue their slave force. That's how they control the population, okay? and it's started by Pharaoh Amos. Here are the kings that follow. Amenhotep I, he rules, and he continues to expand Egyptian rule from the Nile through Canaan, and he's moving up into the Syria area, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Tuthmosis I, now you see that name, Tuthmosis, that's Egyptian. Great prophet of Israel arises with the name Moses, okay? That's an Egyptian name. Then he's followed by Tuthmosis II. He rules for a few years, but then he suddenly dies. And then Tuthmosis III is too young to rule at this time. He's just a little boy. So his mother rules, Hatshepsut. She rules, and she becomes a very capable leader, all right? But Tuthmosis III grows up, and he realizes, hey, you know what? What am I waiting for? I'm actually the pharaoh here. And he gets rid of his mother, or his mother-in-law, it could be. All right? She mysteriously dies. 
And all the monuments to her are all defaced and torn down. When we find monuments to Hatshepsut, too early in the morning for that name, we find that they're all defaced. So he got rid of her, and Tutmosis III takes over. Now, Tutmosis III is considered perhaps the most powerful pharaoh of Egypt. It's under his rule he expands the Egyptian power okay, and Egyptian territory to the greatest extent in the history of Egypt. That's why that 1460 date of the Exodus would be very tough because this would be your pharaoh. And he expands it. He expands the territory of Egypt farther than it's ever been. Amenhotep II continues his domination of Canaan. And then Tuthmosis IV comes along and something very interesting happens with Tuthmosis IV. Now, let me explain to you what's going on here. Here are the four empires during the Middle Bronze Age. Egypt is the most powerful. They're number one. They're like the United States of the Middle Bronze Age. They are the powerhouse. They own the land all through the Nile, up through Canaan, and all the way up there into southern Syria. Okay? They own that whole territory. Number two power is Mitanni. Okay, the Mitanni Empire. They are empire number two. Third in power is the empire of Hatti. Okay, or we know them later on as the Hittites. They are powerhouse number three. Okay, and you read about them in the Bible. And then the fourth powerhouse is still coming along is Assyria there. All right? Old kingdom of Babylon uh, eventually becomes Assyria there in the green. Those are your four powerhouse nations at this time. Now what happened was Egypt would go up there to northern Canaan up there. So Egypt owned this whole territory and they owned up here. This is a very valuable piece of property because it gives you access to the Mediterranean. There are mountains here, so Hatti has no access to the Mediterranean. They need access to the Mediterranean okay, for trade and for uh, military purposes. There's a corridor right here. Mitanni wants access to that corridor as well. They want access to the Mediterranean, but the Egyptians own it. They own this territory right here. They own this place, and they were so powerful. They fought Mitanni, and they fought Hatti, and they would take that territory, and often Hatti and Mitanni would challenge them and try to get back that territory but they were fought off, okay? And it's Tuthmosis III that expands this territory and just takes over this area right here. And Hatti and Mitanni want access to the Mediterranean, and they don't have it. And Hatti and Mitanni want access to the Mediterranean, but Egypt owns that territory. Amenhotep II takes over after Tuthmosis III, and he continues to dominate this whole area, continuing to repel Hatti and Mitanni from access to the Mediterranean. Now, Tuthmosis IV. Now, when Amenhotep II is ruling his land, he sends his son into Canaan, and he says, I want you to be the general over Canaan and control that area. All right, so Tuthmosis IV goes, and he may be considered perhaps the greatest military commander because at a very young age already, at 15, 16 years old, he's commanding the armies of Canaan there. 
and he's interacting with Hati and Mitanni and all the city-states of Canaan. So he knows that territory very well. Now, Tuthmosis IV comes to the throne in 1417 BC. And he says, you know what? Instead of fighting Hati and Mitanni all the time over this territory here, he says, you know what would be better since I know these guys? We're going to make an alliance with one of these nations. We're going to make an alliance here. That way they get what they want and we get what we want. And so he has to pick what country. And Egypt here, according to Egyptian records, we know they're trading. They have ambassadors from Hati and Mitanni and Assyria over there in their country. So he's thinking it over and he decides, you know what? We're going to build an alliance with Mitanni. Okay? We're going to build an alliance with Mitanni and we're going to give them access to that land. In return, we're not going to have wars anymore. We're going to have open trade and they're going to leave this whole area alone and we establish peace with the second powerhouse in the world, Mitanni, and we'll give them access to the Mediterranean corridor there. And so they build an alliance here between Egypt and Mitanni. So you've got two of the most powerful nations there now in a friendly alliance. The king of Mitanni sends his daughter to Tutmosis IV. He marries her, and they've got an alliance. Well, Hati here is totally ticked off. All right, and from then on, they are the sworn enemy of Egypt and are looking for an opportunity, if there is one, to get back at Egypt somehow. But Tutmosis is one of the great, perhaps the greatest war general there in Egypt. There is a picture of a plaque. He is a mighty warrior here, and there's a picture of him on his chariot subduing his enemies there. He is known as the conqueror of Syria and of Canaan. Well, Tutmosis IV is perhaps there's his picture there, and there's his mummy. We have his mummy. Tutmosis reigns for only about eight to ten years, and then he suddenly dies. Just so, and he dies at a very young age. In his late 20s, we estimate, is when he just suddenly dies for some unknown reason. And the Egyptian empire collapses overnight after he dies. Now, we have his mummy here. And we've studied his mummy. And he died at a very young age. Between 25 and 28 years old, he just suddenly dies. And if you look at his mummy... Beautiful, beautiful set hair there. Uh, this guy died very young, and he was a very good-looking, healthy man. Manicured hands, you look, earrings, beautiful set of hair. This guy was fully healthy, and there are no wounds on this guy. All right? He didn't die in battle here. He just suddenly died okay? with no wounds or any signs of sickness. This guy just suddenly dies at a very young age. In fact, G. Elliot Smith, who did the research on Tutmosis and other mummies, he said that at the time of his death, he seemed to be an emaciated man. He was thinning because he doesn't seem to have been eating right. This could be if he was the pharaoh of the Exodus and all this is going on in his country, the stress would just... Uh, the weight on his shoulders would just be unbearable. You could see why he probably wasn't eating right. And he suddenly dies. Now, drowning at the crossing 
of the Sea of Reeds. You remember the story, they chased the Israelites into the Sea of Reeds, and they drowned there. The Exodus says what? The bodies of Pharaoh's army was there. And so what, did, what would Egyptians most likely do? You have to ceremonially bury your Pharaoh or he is not going to have a good life in the afterlife. All right? You got to properly bury him. He probably went there and found his body, brought it back, mummified him, and buried him there, placed him in a tomb. So drowning would cause a sudden death of a very healthy young man. And it's after his death, we see a sudden collapse of the Egyptian empire almost overnight. Now, the person that has to take over Tutmosis IV is Amenhotep III. And he's only 12 years old when he suddenly had to come to the throne. And he didn't want to be the pharaoh. He'd rather spend his time playing around, womanizing, and all these things. Perhaps he wasn't ready to become pharaoh. Perhaps he had an older firstborn brother who died. What happened in the final plague? The firstborn sons were killed. All right, so Amenhotep III, he's too young, all right, but he comes to the throne at 12 years old, and he really wasn't interested in ruling Egypt. And so his mother, Queen Mutenwia, she rules in his place. But it's under Amenhotep III, Egypt withdraws from the Levant. Remember, they own that whole territory up to the Euphrates. They suddenly withdraw. In fact, they withdraw out of Canaan. And guess what? The city-states begin to rebel. They rebel. And eventually he comes of age, but he still doesn't really want to rule Egypt. Okay? So his wife actually kind of rules for his final 10 years. But Egypt abandons its Euphrates border, and they withdraw from Canaan. And they lose complete control over the Levant. Okay? And I'll tell you how we know that. But the Levant... Canaan, that whole area just goes into complete chaos. We know from Egyptian records, and I'll show you some later, that plagues are still ravaging Egypt. When the plagues hit Egypt, they just didn't go away, you know, a week later. It's like coronavirus, all right? They suffer from it for several years, okay? They still reel from it for over a decade. The alliance that Egypt had with Mitanni falls apart, Hati senses something's wrong with Egypt. Their collapse from power has happened. And guess what? They want that Mediterranean corridor over there. All right? They've been eyeing it. They want it. They sense something is going on here. The Egyptian armies have withdrawn. Canaan is in complete chaos over here. They know something is up. They're the sworn enemies of Mitanni and Egypt and the warrior king, King Supi Luli Uma, all right, the great king of Hati, says, you know what, this is our opportunity. And he goes in and he attacks and destroys and wipes out the kingdom of Mitanni. All right, and he's able to do that because their ally, Egypt, can't come to their aid. Now, succeeding Amenhotep III is Amenhotep IV. Amenhotep IV and Amenhotep IV, when he takes over, Egypt is continuing her very quick decline. Canaan disintegrates into chaos. The city-states in something called the Amarna Letters. 
Okay, over a hundred letters on clay tablets. We know that. Call to Egypt for help. They call to Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV. And we have the Amarna tablets. And they're saying, Pharaoh, help us out here. We are being attacked by a nomadic group called the Habiru. Help us out because if you don't send any aid, the Habiru are going to come in and take over the city-states from Egypt. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Please use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs> <laughs> 